Thank you so much for having me. It's working. Okay. Um, it's great to come out here to Hawaii. It's uh, beautiful. I actually agreed to give this talk three years ago. And I'm glad it's happened. Three years later. Better late than never. And it's been a real treat to run into my old med school classmate, Yoshi Saito. We were uh, classmates together. I haven't seen him in 13 years. So I'm going to talk to you all about how to keep up with the cancer literature. It isn't easy these days. It's a full-time job and then some. And uh, by way of background, I'm a hemon. People have been asking me, what exactly do you do? I work at the same hospital as Don Abrams. In fact, I work in the same clinic. I do hematology there, and I attend on service, hemonomic, and then I also do some work at the VA. And a lot of what you see is the work we do in epidemiology. In terms of conflicts of interest, our research is funded by nonprofit. I do work on cancer pathways and royalties from writing books and other things. All right, uh, this got started like so many like so many uh, talks with the case. This is a real case presentation. I was in clinic at San Francisco General Hospital, and I was taking care of a 65-year-old woman with multiple myeloma. She was 65 and multiple myeloma. She was accompanied by her younger sister, a 60-year-old woman who was totally healthy. And as is often the case in oncology, it's the family member that has the very hard question. She said, doctor, you know, I don't have multiple myeloma. Unfortunately, my sister does. I'd hate to get it myself. So do you think I should increase the amount of exercise I do to avoid getting multiple myeloma? I said, that's a good question. Okay, so what's the evidence for exercise and reducing incident myeloma in a healthy person with a first degree affected relative? I said, let me think about that a second. I'm gonna answer this question. And then she fired, then you read the new study. Of course, the new study. Did I read it? And I'm the kind of doctor who's supposed to be reading the articles. She's asking me. This was the study she's talking about. She read about American Cancer Society. Getting enough exercise lowers the risk of seven cancers. And she and one of those seven cancers was apparently multiple myeloma. And the paper was published in the JCO, JCO, one of our premier publications. And they took data from nine prospective cohorts, 700,000 people. They pooled it all together. They looked at 15 different cancers. And for seven of the 15, there was a relationship between exercise, how much exercise you do a week, and getting that cancer. And that's what this patient's sister was asking me about. And I dug into the paper, and actually, they did have a figure in it. This is like buried in the paper. Why well, cut this out? Multiple myeloma. <clears throat> and lo and behold, it shows hazard ratio. Does this have a laser? Oh, no. No laser on this, huh? Okay. Um, it shows hazard ratio one means there's no, you know, same risk. And it shows in metabolic equivalents a week, or METs, as you do more METs, that hazard ratio falls lower and lower until you get to 15 METs an hour, sorry, 15, uh, 15 hours a week of METs. That's the sweet spot. That's where it's like 20% protective. But then like anything else, you do too much of it, and look what happens, you know? <laughs> too much of a good thing, not so good. <laughs> Statistically significant, okay? And so then I did what any self-respecting doctor would do. You know, I had to admit myself, I actually don't know what a MET is. Does anyone know what a MET is? I don't know. I mean, I'm an oncologist. I know a lot about chemo. I know a lot about pills. I don't know anything about METs. Don Abrams wasn't there to help me out. He probably knows all about METs. But I didn't know. So I did what any good doctor would do. I tilted my monitor away from the patient, and I looked it up on Wikipedia. Wikipedia, <laughs> <laughs> of course. That's what a good doctor does. <laughs> but you can't let them know you're doing it, so you gotta tell them. <laughs> and I found out 
found this graph. I found this graph. And so it actually breaks down METs. It turns out it's a little more complicated than just METs. There's light intensity, there's moderate intensity, there's vigorous intensity. And you know, back in those days, I was riding my bike to work, you know, to and from. I was doing like 50 miles a week in commuting, but that's vigorous intensity. I was off the charts. You know, I was back in danger territory. <laughs> you know, one thing jumped out at me on this, which I noticed that sexual activity was scored as METs, but it was benchmarked for a 22-year-old. <laughs> as an older person, I found this deeply insulting. <laughs> deeply insulting. Okay, so I did more digging in the paper, and the supplement, it actually separates the METs by moderate and vigorous intensity. This is true, it's in the supplement. And as you can see, the protective effect is only present for moderate intensity. For vigorous intensity, it's hugging one, which means same risk. So, okay, what am I to think? How did I feel? You looked at 15 cancers, seven had a relationship. Did you really look at 15 or did you look at more? And how many cancers are there, by the way? I'm an oncologist, I don't even know the answer. I think there's over a thousand different cancers. In the new WHO, there's 200 lymphomas, so there must be 1,000 plus cancers. And so there's 1,000 cancers you can look at. You can slice and dice exercise in all sorts of ways. And for seven of 15, they found a relationship for METs. But if you, did mo if you did vigorous, it doesn't work. Moderate, it does, but only 15, not 30. How did I feel? I felt like this. I have stock photos of myself in all emotional states. This is me looking very perplexed. Why did I feel this way? Because it's implausible to me. Okay, I'm a believer that exercise is good for you, but why should moderate intensity be good only to a point and not beyond? Why not vigorous? And then the other thing I think about is the potential for multiple hypothesis testing. How many different people are looking at exercise and cancer? How many different ways can you slice and dice cancer? There's biking, there's rowing, there's running, there's swimming, and then there's METs per week. And there are so many different ways to slice and dice. I don't know how many times they did the analysis before they're presenting me their favorite 15 things. Finally, there's the issue of confounding. Like if you have rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or an autoimmune condition, you might be both less likely to exercise and you might be more likely to develop myeloma. And it might be the underlying condition and not the exercise itself that's protective. And then finally, there's measurement error. This is all based on what people say they did on a, on a survey. And I don't know if that's true or not. Like I just told you, I ride my bike to work every week. And who knows that's true or not. So how did I answer this patient? Like any expert doctor? I gave the answer to a question I actually knew the answer to. So I said, you know, you're ask if you're asking me, you know, do I believe staying active is part of leading a healthy life, then the answer to you is absolutely yes, I do. I try to stay active myself. And if you're asking me would I specifically exercise to avoid multiple myeloma, I guess my answer to you is I would do it as part of a broader pattern of good general cardiovascular health. Okay, that's my answer. And then she fired back, but doctor, have you read the new paper? <laughs> Have I read that new paper? And I read that paper that Monday in clinic, and the answer was, no, I hadn't read the paper. I hadn't read the paper. I didn't even know about the paper. And the person I was hearing it from, the patient's sister. And that's kind of embarrassing as a doctor who's supposed to keep up with the literature. Okay, so that's what this talk is about. Not to be embarrassed like that. Um, you know, what are the best techniques to keep up with the literature? What are some examples of studies commonly misinterpreted? And how can you be a better reader? Okay, that's what I hope to convey. And I'm also standing between you and lunch. So we're going to get to maybe a decision point whether or not I should go on or we should just, okay, we get some choices. Did you know there's 50 million scientific articles indexed in PubMed, Google Scholar, Medline? That's more than anyone can read in a lifetime. Even if you just do HER2-positive breast cancer, you might not be able to read all the randomized trials per annum in HER2-positive breast cancer if you're just a HER2-positive breast cancer person let alone if you take care of more than one cancer. 
So we have more literature than we can read in a lifetime. It's coming out faster than ever. This is already a few years out of date, but it was piling up. They call it the publication pileup. This was in The Economist. We've got over two million new articles per annum coming out, more than anyone can read. And at the same time, we have so many new articles, I read headlines like this. Replication, duplication, and waste in a quarter million systematic reviews and meta-analyses. The mass production of redundant, misleading, and conflicted systematic reviews and meta-analyses and challenges in irreproducible research. So not only have we got so many articles to read, most aren't good. They tell me they're not good articles. So how am I to like, navigate these waters? If you decide to go now and eat lunch, you can find everything in the rest of this talk is going to be in this article I wrote a few years ago for Medscape. It's called The 21st Century Physician, How Do We Triage the Tsunami of Medical Information? Okay, this is a rule of thumb. This is how I do it. I call it timing is everything. Okay, so I think that back when I was an oncology fellow, every time the attending mentioned an important article, I printed it off on that computer, I stapled it, I took it home and put it on my nightstand. I said to myself, when I get vacation time, am I going to I'm going to take all these articles, I'm going to read them on the plane when I got time. I'm going to read them on the beach, you know? And then three years later, when I graduated Hemong Fellowship, I took a thick stack of articles, I blew the dust off the top, and then I put them in the recycling bin. <laughs> so the truth is, if your strategy to keep up with articles is to read it when you're on vacation, either you're going to read it or you're going to have a good vacation. You can't do both. And you're really not going to read. And so I think that my pattern now is you build in reading into your routine. It's got to be a part of your habit. And you can't read a lot. I mean, even if you read one article a month, cover to cover, that's pretty good. But you should be aware of a lot. You should keep your eyes on a lot. And for me, timing is everything. So what do I mean by that? So when I'm on my phone, and it's about noon Pacific time on a Monday, I scroll through my favorite thing to look at on Monday, noon, Jam Journal Medicine. Jam Journal Medicine, they just dropped the hot new articles. They just hit. They just came out that day. Tuesday, same time, Mama Jamma. They just dropped new articles. Wednesday, I know Steve knows this, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, new articles are out, and they're on New England Journal Medicine website. And at, I swear to you, 2.10, Pacific time, I'll always pull out my phone and just see what did they put out. I'm just reading the titles, I'm just skimming abstracts, but I want to know what they put out. Thursday for me is Jam Month, Monday, sometimes I look at JCL, they trickle off the articles. Now why do I look at a certain time? I look at a certain time because even if I don't read the whole article, I want to know what smart people think about it and what they're saying about it. I want to be a part of the conversation or eavesdrop. And where is that conversation taking place? My sources tell me <laughs> that this is uh, a relic of antiquity called a water cooler. And in the before times, we would gather around it, we would show our faces to each other, and we'd talk about the day's news. Those days are over. We're all on Zoom. Nobody's come together. It's great to see you all. But beyond this, we don't see each other too often. So where does the conversation take place about these new articles? And it takes place here, on Twitter, on social media. <laughs> it's true, though. I mean. You know, if there's a new CAR-T study, I'm going to see what Dr. Grupp thinks about it. If there's a new study in cardiology, I'm going to see what Vink Morthy thinks about it. If there's a study in electrophysiology, I, I like to follow John Mandrola. You find people you like to follow, and you know that if it's in their wheelhouse, they're going to say something about it. And so I just want to skim the title and abstract, so when I go on Twitter and look to see what doctors are saying, i got some frame of reference for that. And so that's kind of how I'm trying to keep up with things in real time. So when you tell me about a drug, I know that, hey, I think I remember last month they published something. So when I, so I'm going to take you through now what it's like to read, what, I, what happens when I actually get interested in something. Okay, I want to read the article. 
So I gotta say, when I skim these articles, I don't read them all, it's too little time for that. I use uh, the rules of triage. If it pertains to my practice, I'm more likely to read it than not. So I'm sorry, rheumatology, I won't read that article. If it's randomized, I'm more likely to read it than observational. If it's a large sample size, for me that's 100, I'm more likely to read it than less than 100. If the endpoint is a clinical endpoint, like living longer, living better, survival, or quality of life, I'm more likely to read it than if the endpoint is progression-free survival, or MRD, or response rate. Those are just my rules of thumb. One day I opened the New England Journal of Medicine, you know when it was, it was a Wednesday, 2.10 p.m. Pacific time, and I saw <laughs> maintenance of lab room for germline BRCA mutated metastatic pancreas cancer. And by the way, the folks I talked to from AstraZeneca, uh, I won't be offended if you step out right now. I'm sorry for what I'm about to do to you for this paper, but I apologize in advance. I apologize in advance, AstraZeneca. Um, but no hard feelings, no hard feelings. So this is the paper that came out. And it caught my eye because, you know, of all pancreas cancer, first of all, it's hard to treat. In my career in oncology, we've only ever had two New England Journal papers I can think of, Fulfirinox and Nabpaclitaxel. And we hadn't had anything a long time. I never even heard of maintenance in pancreas cancer. I didn't even know that was a thing. And finally, we've got a targeted drug, Olaparib, a PARP inhibitor, that's come into market for pancreas cancer. Not everyone with pancreas cancer, people with germline BRCA mutations. So whenever I see a paper and it catches my interest, I take a deep dive. This paper, a lot of people were telling me to read this paper. I opened my inbox and I got an article from Matt Herper from STAT and it's called AstraZeneca's Dynamic Duo Wants to Dominate the Market for Cancer Drugs. It has this quote about this paper. It's unbelievable, said the late great Jose Baselka. It validates the principle we have been fighting for all these years, that even in the most difficult disease, even the disease you think you're not going to win, if you find the genetic vulnerability, if you find that, then those giants, they crumble. And I said, that is a quote, my goodness. This must be good. This is good. And uh, just to show, this was myself with Baselga uh, at AACR a few years ago, and David Hyman. Um, and so, you know, I do miss him. He was a great force in oncology. He passed away last year. Um, I also read this. The University of Chicago put out a press release about polo trial. This is from the PI. This is the quote in the press release, and this was covered in news outlets. When we saw the progression-free survival data, my first reaction was a little scream of joy. We finally made real progress in the treatment of a subset of patients with advanced pancreas cancer. Okay, so now I'm reading about it in my inbox, I'm seeing it on the news, it's the New England Journal paper. I said, I gotta read this, I gotta know what people are talking about. So whenever I read an article, I advise you, never read it cover to cover. If you're having difficulty sleeping, then read it cover to cover. But if you, <laughs> if you wanna understand it, you can't read it cover to cover. It's too boring, it's too boring. So I like to have a question in my mind and try to answer that question. So I got a question and I'll skim around. I'll look at methods, results, I'll look at the pictures, probably pictures where I start. I just wanted to answer these questions. My first question, what did they do? I imagine I'm sitting next to you at a dinner and you ask me what the heck they do in polo trial. I say, oh boy, let me explain. So here's what they did. Now as you know, with patients with pancreas cancer, not all of them, but some of them, maybe 10% of them have mutations in germline BRCA. They're born with that mutation. They develop pancreas cancer often 10 years younger than the average age. They often, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that it happens. They took those patients with germline BRCA mutations and they gave them the standard of care therapy, which was Fulfirinox. We know platinum is really good for people with germline BRCA defects. They gave them four months of Fulfirinox or 16 weeks. And then they randomized them if they didn't have progressive disease. So stable disease, partial response, or complete response, if you're in those categories, you were randomized three to two randomization to a lab rib or placebo. A lab rib, a $12,000 a month AstraZeneca medicine, placebo sugar pill. Okay, this is what they did in the study. The primary endpoint is progression-free survival. They also report overall survival later and response rate. 
Um, and I just, like to, I just like to put it in my own words and summarize it to people. We could spend a whole day talking about why they chose three to two. We'll skip it for today. First question I ask, is the control arm what I would have done in my clinic? Same patient, my clinic, they came in. Would I have given them four months of fulfirinox or platinum-based therapy? And if they didn't have progression, stop all therapy and observe them. And the answer is, unfortunately, I would not have stopped therapy. If you're doing well on fulfirinox therapy after four months of therapy, you get two more months of the whole combo, in my opinion, and then you can omit oxaliplatin if you want. But keep them on five a few minutes forever. Or if you really want, they're really doing well, and this is a 50-year-old person with germline BRCA, you just keep treating. I've never heard of stopping treatment in pancreas cancer, because it's a very aggressive cancer. And it turns out that in the original study that led to fulfirinox's authorization in uh, this disease, the French investigators, they didn't stop fulfirinox. They went up against gemcitabine. And they administered a median number of treatment cycles of 10 in the fulfirinox group, which comes out to five months, one month more than polo. But it's actually a little more complicated than that. You see, in the fulfirinox study, they included anybody with pancreas cancer, whereas in polo, you had to have four months without progressive disease. So if you progressed in the four, first four months, you wouldn't be a candidate in polo study, but yet you were in this study. So I went back and I removed the subset of patients who progressed in the four months, and I recalculated the median duration of treatment in the French study on fulfirinox, and the answer was seven months of treatment. They averaged seven months of treatment. Remember, Polo gave them four months only. Now, they, they should have been getting seven, but actually they should be getting even more than seven, because now we know the median survival of germline BRCA. It's not an average pancreas cancer patient. They're not, their median age is not 72. It's in the 50s, and their survival is much longer than the average pancreas cancer patient. In fact, the control arm of Polo is still living like 18 to 20 months, which is you know, very, very high. And so I actually did some back calculations that I won't bore you with, but I suspect that they should be getting about 12 months of fulfirinox therapy if they were allowed to continue. But in this trial, they have to stop and take a sugar pill. And that to me is a problem. So first thing, is the control arm what you would do in your practice? And if the answer is no, then the trial doesn't change your practice if the control arm isn't your practice, because it may be better than what they're doing, but I'm not in the stopping treatment business in pancreas cancer. All right, then what's the primary endpoint of the study? primary endpoint is something called progression-free survival. The time until your cancer gets worse or you die, whichever comes first, I'll take you through that. And the hazard ratio here is 0.53, which people say is pretty good. And uh, you know, there's the old saying in oncology, which is if you can fit the laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary at the national meeting. And here you can fit several laser pointers. Several laser pointers. Is it a clinical or surrogate endpoint? In other words, does it actually matter to people in and of itself, or is it something that's a stand-in for that? And the answer to that is you have to know what PFS is. So what is PFS? So we use RESIST 1.1, which is a measure of tumors, and when people start, we measure the diameter of the tumor, and we follow them. And progression-free survival is a time-to-event endpoint, which means when you start, by definition, no one could have it. But over time, it will happen, and it's one of four things that could happen to someone. Number one, they pass away. If the person starts on treatment, they die two weeks later, they're scored as they've had the event. It's not good. The second thing that could happen is you scan the person at baseline, the lungs look normal, you scan them six weeks later, and they're innumerable pulmonary nodules. No matter what happened to the target lesions you've measured, that is a progression-free, that's a PFS event. They progress, they have new lesions on scan. That's also not so good. If you did measure the tumor in the beginning and the tumor starts to get bigger, eventually they progress. But how much bigger? And the answer is 20% bigger. If it gets more than 20% bigger, it's progressive disease. 
That's sweet, sweet, stable disease, they call it. This is arbitrary, you know? Nobody walks around saying 119% I'm feeling good, 122% oh, I feel terrible. It's arbitrary. And we'll talk about why it, where it comes from, okay? The other thing that could happen is your tumor shrinks. If it shrinks more than 30%, that's a response. Okay, that's a response, PRCR. And there, it's growth from the nadir value, the smallest it ever gets. Progression-free survival is the time until one of these four things happens, whichever comes first. It's mostly three and four. These are all arbitrary numbers, so that's why I say progression-free survival is a surrogate endpoint. It doesn't necessarily mean you live longer or live better, but it has some correlation with that. What about other measures? When I looked at polo, there was something else that caught my eye. Response. Now, I told you already that a 30% or more tumor shrinkage is a response. And in polo, they calculate a response rate, which is of 100 people who get the drug, what percent of people have 30% or more tumor shrinkage. And of a laparib, of 100 people who get a laparib, 19%, you know, one in five people has 30% or more tumor shrinkage. Do I believe it? Yeah. Olaparib's a PARP inhibitor. It's an active anti-cancer drug. It has, you know, cytopenia is a side effect. It's doing something in the cancer, shrinking it, sure. Of the people who get sugar pill, 10% of them have 30% or more tumor shrinkage. Do I believe that? And the answer is, I don't know as much about sugar as Don Abrams, but I do know one thing. <laughs> sugar don't shrink pancreas cancer. I've never heard somebody say, I ate a bag of Skittles, my cancer shrunk. That is fishy. Why is it 10%? Why is it 10%? It's way too high. It's in fact, I'll show you, it's five times higher than what I expect it to be. I'm an old-fashioned doctor. I looked to look at overall survival. In the Polo study, overall survival, how long you live, was actually unchanged in the initial report. You couldn't even fit a laser pointer between them because there's no difference. In the final report, there is, again, no difference in overall survival. $12,000 a month medication taken for many months against a, treat, against a control arm that's probably beneath what I would do in my, my clinic, and it doesn't have a, a survival benefit at all. You don't live a single day longer. So how do we put these facts together? There's a PFS benefit, but no survival benefit, and sugar pill has 10% response rate. First, you need to know where response comes from. Why is it 30%, not 20%, or 40%, or 50%? You know, where does it come from? We talk about response all the time. We all talk about it every day. Where's that number? Why 30? And the answer is it comes from a dinner party in 1976. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a joke. This is truth. This is where it comes from. Charles Mortel, great oncologist. He's a legend. He did so many great things. One of the few doctors who actually talked about drug price before it was popular for Levansol. And he had a dinner party, they say, apocryphally, where he invited 16 oncologists. They came to his house. He put a mattress on the dining table, and he busted out 12 marbles. He rolled some foam rubber out on top, and they busted out the calipers to take 1,900 measurements, or as I like to call it, great party. <laughs> <laughs> My kind of party. Okay. So 12 solid spheres from 2 centimeters to 15 centimeters in diameter was put on the table. They unrolled half an inch thick foam rubber to approximate the skin and subcutaneous tissues and 1.5 inches of foam rubber to approximate the abdominal wall. But if you were doing the modern age, you might have to change the foam rubber measurements. And then each doctor brought the ruler or caliper he employed in clinical practice. There are no women at this party because back in these days, oncology was very discriminatory. It was only men. So these are 16 men oncologists measuring marbles through foam rubber. <laughs> Charles Mortel is actually quite smart. Marble six and five and six are the same size. 
but he doesn't tell anybody that. And, and marble seven and eight are the same size, he doesn't tell anybody that either. And he asks you to tell me how many uh, these things are. So does anyone know why is he, in 1976, making doctors measure marbles through foam rubber? Any guesses? What didn't he have? He didn't have CT scans. He didn't have CT scans. And in these days, you may recall, there was a huge industry of people who said they had cures for cancer. One was latril, which is like the peach pit, a compound from peach pit. And Charles Martel didn't believe that latril worked. And they're also saying, well, the bark of the Pacific yew tree might be anti-cancer, and platinum might be anti-cancer, and adriamycin might be anti-cancer. And he needs a way to figure out what is anti-cancer and what isn't without having to run a randomized trial for every single drug. And what he decides is, if you give it to 10 people, 100 people, and the tumors shrink, well, then you can think it might have some anti-cancer properties. But for a tumor to shrink, he needs to have some benchmark of size where we agree that it's actually smaller than it was. Because you can imagine if you measure a marble through foam rubber with the caliper, which is how they measure tumors, by pressing on the belly and squeezing, there's some measurement error. One day it's 5, one day 4.8, one day 5.2, one day 5.1. So he needs a difference in size where you can reliably agree that it is actually smaller than it was before. And he's doing his whole study to find what that difference is. And it's actually very clever. Because he included marbles of the same size, he can ask, how often do two different doctors think the same tumor was actually different? If he uses a bi-dimensional 25% shrinkage, he gets one in four error rate of a, I don't have a laser pointer, but it's on the lower left of the screen, 24%. If he uses a 50% bi-dimensional measurement, he gets one in, one in 20, roughly, 5%. And he likes one in 20 because that's the p-value, 0.05, which is what Fisher was using. It's the nominally significant value. So he's saying, I'm willing to accept a 5% error but that we actually think the same tumor is actually different in size with a 50% bi-dimensional cutoff, and the same is true for the same doctor. I'll make it simple for you. This is a cutoff chosen for operational reason. He chose the 50% bi-dimensional measurement because that's what men in 1976 could reliably tell apart when they measure marbles through foam rubber at a dinner party, and he made that the response criteria. And that's the same response criteria you use to this day. And you say, but you use 30%, not 50%. I pulled a fast one on you, didn't I? And the answer to that question is actually in the 1980s, we used WHO criteria. WHO measured in two dimensions, and it's a bi-dimensional 50% in two dimensions, which if you use the formula 4 3rd pi r cubed, is volumetrically a third of what it was when it started. But when we simplified to resist 1.1, we moved to a unidimensional measurement of 30, which has the exact same 4 3rd pi r cubed value of 34%. <coughs> So actually, the unidimensional 30% is the, is the mortel cutoff. So the cutoff we use to define who is a responder is what men can reliably tell apart in 1976 through foam rubber. It's never meant to be you feel better as a result of being beyond it, or you feel bad if you're not yet to it. It's arbitrary. And that's, I think, the original sin of oncology is we have forgotten response isn't living longer or living better. It's a measure of tumor shrinkage that was used to weed out candidate compounds in the 70s. So in polo trial, that sugar pill <coughs> shrinks tumors 30% or more 10% of the time. Is that typical? Even though Mortel picked the cutoff arbitrary, it had some wisdom to it. Many years ago, Ian Tannock and colleagues, they took all the trials where they gave a sugar pill to one arm, and they asked what was the response rate on sugar pill, and it was 2.7%. Now, it's never going to be zero because there's measurement error. If you take the same person, scan them twice, 10 minutes apart, and measure, there'll be some difference in the measurements. But 2% is what you expect from something that's not actually shrinking cancer. That's the measurement error of the, of the test. But in polo, they got 10%. So does anyone know why it is five times higher in polo trial? Any guesses? Four months of platinum-based therapy. You stop, you take sugar pill. 
from when you enroll on the study, one in 10 people have tumor shrinkage. Yes, somebody's saying it. It's a, it's a residual effect of the prior chemo. And you can think about it this way. They're getting chemo, they have stable disease or partial response, they enroll on your study, they get a lap rib, one in five have tumor shrinkage. But if you get sugar pill, 10% have tumor shrinkage. It's chemotherapy and pancreas cancer, it's like pushing a freight train down the tracks. Just because you let go doesn't mean it stops. It has an inertia to it. And the reason I keep harping on this is because this is a trial where the control arm was deprived of anti-cancer therapy. As I've told you twice, I would never have done in my clinic. I would have kept them on drug. And this trial is saying that when you stop the drug, one in 10 has a response. Imagine what it would be if you just kept giving the drug. It wouldn't be 20%. I speculate it would be 30 or 40%. And Olaparib wouldn't be a drug that didn't improve survival. Olaparib would be a drug that killed patients because chemotherapy continued is actually better. And that's what I think it's showing you. It's showing you these people have chemo-responsive tumors, and you've wrongly stopped their chemo. That's why 10% still have response from drug they haven't gotten in weeks. Bad trial. <laughs> bad trial. Really bad. So Polo, you halt a drug that's normally not halted. You randomize people to a new, costly, toxic pill or placebo. It's $12,000 a month. You measure an endpoint that actually, by the way, we've never used PFS in pancreas cancer. You don't need to use PFS because overall survival is already accrued. It's 18 months. You don't need to use a surrogate when you can measure the thing you care about. And historically, PFS was never accepted in pancreas cancer. Actually, overall survival in the final update in the JCO this year was not improved. Quality of life is actually not better. It's not better on this drug than placebo, okay? So what does the FDA do? No survival benefit, no quality of life benefit, $12,000 a month. Control arm is beneath the US standard of care arguably unethical trial. The FDA does. On the question of whether Olaparib has a favorable risk-benefit profile, the ODAC votes in favor, 7-5. And the answer is, heck yeah. So it's not, heck yeah. So I don't think heck yeah, actually. We wrote a paper in cancer. Olaparib for pancreas cancer should polo change practice. I think this actually speaks to the root problem in our field, which is we are so seduced by the profits of the drugs, we have forgotten that trials are not helping our patients. You're taking people, you're stopping the drug, you shouldn't be stopping the drug. You're measuring the endpoint you shouldn't be measuring. And if you had just given more drug, they'd probably be living longer, and you're not acknowledging that fact. And is actually not really no side effects. It still has side effects. And probably these patients would be better off two more months of Oxali than just put them on five of you. And so I don't use it. I'll never use Olaparib until I see a better study. Well, I've talked for 30 minutes, but we're running behind. You want 15 more minutes? Keep going. Yes. All right. I'll give you a choice, okay? You do a show of hands. Option A. Option A, because there's only 15 minutes, so I'll, I had some other stuff, but I'll, I'll put it on the back burner. Option A, I tell you why, when you read a study in the New York Times about coffee, alcohol, green tea, Little link to the last one. One week you read it's good for you, one week you read it's bad for you. Why does that happen? <clears throat> Researchers at Stanford have answered that question. Why does the news flip-flop on common nutrition? That's option A. Option B, in a cancer clinical trial, sometimes you hear about crossover. That means that people who initially got the control arm got the active drug. When is crossover good? When is crossover bad? Why are we so confused on crossover? That's option B. Okay, those of you who want to hear option A, the next 15 minutes, why the news flip-flops on nutrition, put your hand up. Okay, those of you who want to hear option B, when is crossover good and when is it bad, put your hands up. Oh wow, crossover wins. <laughs> okay, you got it. 
That's different than most crowds, actually. <laughs> most crowds would go the other way. Okay, what is crossover? So crossover is something that we have in trials. It was really, a lot of it comes from the psychiatry literature. You take somebody with depression, you randomize them to Prozac or sugar pill. After 12 weeks, you measure their depression. Then you have them stop taking whatever they're taking for two weeks, have a washout, and then you switch. And if you were taking sugar pill, now you take Prozac. If you take Prozac, now you take sugar pill. So now I can do both between arm comparisons, which is the virtue of randomization, but also intra-individual patient comparisons. I can do both. But crossover only works for endpoints that are short-term, transient, reversible. In oncology, we don't have a lot of those. We have progression, progression, death, unfortunately. So for us, crossover means something very different. We take people with cancer, we randomize them to new drug or placebo, and when their tumor gets worse, if you took placebo, you get the new drug when you progress. This is unidirectional crossover from the control arm to the experimental agent, and it is one of the most misunderstood concepts in oncology. So in 15 minutes, I'm gonna make it crystal clear. Okay. <clears throat> Another way to think about it is if you take the drug initially and you progress, you get the standard of care therapy. If you take the sugar pill or placebo initially and you progress, you get the new drug. Okay. The reason it's confusing is there are trials in oncology where crossover is desirable. You really want it. You have to have it. You need it. And there are situations where it's undesirable. You do not want it. Please don't put it in. Okay. And then you can either get it or not get it. And the problem with these trials and interpreting it is you get all four. If you want it and you get it, it's good. And if you don't want it and you don't get it, that's good. But if you want it and you don't get it, that's bad. And if you don't want it, you get it, it's bad. <laughs> this is really why. This is why it's confusing. So let me start with one trial where we have it. And by the end of it, we'll decide if we wanted it or didn't. Oh, gosh. As much as I edit my slides, I didn't edit this. It should say Cipolucil T or Provenge. Okay. Provenge has crossover. Is that desirable or undesirable? On a fateful Wednesday, <laughs> of course it's Wednesday, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Pacific time, uh, no, 5 p.m. Eastern, Cipolucil T for castrate-resistant prostate cancer came out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Okay, this is the impact study. Cipolucil T is what we call a cancer therapeutic vaccine. It's not like Gardasil, the HPV vaccine, which prevents you from getting cancer by preventing you from getting the virus that causes the cancer. It's a therapeutic cancer vaccine. I mean, you already take somebody with prostate cancer, you take some of their cells, you make it into sort of an immunotherapy cancer, you inject them with that, and that stimulates their own body to fight off their own cancer. We've been working as the original, you know, CAR-T is a very successful immunotherapy. This is less successful. In all the years of trying this, that cancer therapeutic vaccines, there's only ever been one that came to the US market. This is the one. Every other one has failed for 40 years, nothing but failures. And since this came out, Bavaria Nordic's product, Prostavax, failed. I think Bavaria Nordic went belly up as a result of that. GVAX failed. Many, many cancer therapy vaccines fail. It's the only one that ever worked, okay? Very unusual. One hit wonder, this is it. And overall survival, this is overall survival, not progression-free survival. <clears throat> overall survival, time until you pass away. Cipolucil T versus placebo. It's a four-month improvement in median survival. You know, and I think it's, it, there's, some, there's a real difference here. If you were on the Cipolucil T arm, you lived longer than if you didn't. And that's what led to regulatory approval. It's the only therapeutic vaccine ever to be approved and it has a four-month survival gain, but one thing very odd about it is it has a 0% response rate. Not a single person had 30% or more tumor shrinkage. 
It has no difference in progression-free survival, or PFS, or time to progression. Your tumor grew at the exact same rate. So now you have a class of drugs, never had a success, one success, doesn't shrink the cancer, doesn't change how fast it grows, but you live four months longer. Very unusual drug. It goes in your body and it says, you know what, I'm gonna lie low for the first seven months, not do anything. I don't want them to eat, I don't want the cancer to even know I'm here. But month eight, nine, ten, it just fights cancer, fights cancer. <laughs> does it do that? That's what they have you believe. They have you believe it does that. For me, that I was like, well, how could it do that? How could it do that? It's a miracle. So I look closely at the trial. They take the patients, it should say CR, metastatic castor-resistant prostate cancer. They randomize them to cipolucil T or placebo. Okay, placebo is they give you a saline injection, they say it's a vaccine. Meanwhile, for everybody in this study, they have crossover. So the placebo arm, they froze your vaccine. And when your tumor gets 20% bigger and you progress, what do you get? On placebo, you get the frozen, thawed out cipolucil T. But what do you get if you get cipolucil T first and you progress? Any guesses? Docetaxel. Docetaxel. Mm. So if cipolucil T goes first, then you progress 20% bigger, you get docetaxel. Remember, the time to progression is the same. There's no responses on this drug. So you're just going to grow. There's no shrinking. And if you take placebo first and you progress, then you get cipolucil T. Okay? And then only if you progress a second time to get docetaxel. Now, what's one thing about docetaxel that you should know? It has, it has, in many randomized studies, shown an improvement in survival. So now this randomized study has two moving parts. It's a randomized trial of cipolucil T or placebo, but also a randomized trial of early docetaxel versus delayed docetaxel. So which is doing the driving, the cipolucil T or the early versus delayed docetaxel? And the answer is, if you read the paper, I made it simple for you, 50%, 57% of people get docetaxel here, 50% get it on the control arm, they get it after 12 months here, they get it after 14 months here. There's a big difference in docetaxel. And docetaxel has, is a life-extending drug. The AHRQ commissioned a report on this product, and this is their conclusion of the AHRQ's report. It was a $90,000 product for this vaccine back in the day. We used to say that was expensive. Now we say that's a deal. I'll take three. HRQ says, we cannot exclude the fact that survival in the absence of tumor shrinkage or progression-free survival is actually due to harm to the control group from delaying chemotherapy due to getting an ineffective frozen salvage product. And so the reason it might be the only cancer therapeutic vaccine that's ever worked, even though it doesn't shrink tumors and doesn't change progression, might be because it's really the docetaxel doing the lifting for this drug. So cipolucil T has crossover, but you actually didn't want it. You didn't want it, and because they have it, it muddied the water. Crossover was undesirable because the trial was assessing the fundamental efficacy of the product. And in trials assessing fundamental efficacy, you don't want crossover. Because if there is a survival benefit, you don't know if it's delay of important chemotherapy. And if there isn't a survival benefit, you don't know the drug would have had a survival benefit had it not been for crossover. Equally, it could have off-target harm that masks a, de a death signal from crossover. So you get all these problems when you don't want it. All right, now we'll close with one example where you really want it. And the example where you really want it is always in cases where you already use the drug in the second or third line, and your randomized trial is asking, should we bring it to the front line? And if you move a drug up that you already use, your control arm should be, as I always say, the care you'd otherwise give someone not on a study, which means when they progress, they should get that drug. So one example is this one. This is, uh, people may, may remember, uh, back in 2010, 2012, Cougar Pharmaceutical developed abiraterone. 
Their first randomized control trial in cancer-resistant prostate cancer was post-docetaxel, survival benefit. Then they moved pre-docetaxel, survival benefit, and abiraterone, and very quickly, enzalutamide became standard of care therapies for advanced metastatic prostate cancer. We all gave Abby an enza. Then, many years later, they ran Stampede in Latitude, where they took those same drugs and gave it to people with castrate-sensitive prostate cancer early in the journey. And that's this survival curve. If you get abiraterone early in your prostate cancer journey against placebo, there's an overall survival advantage. So the companies say, give it early, because we've proven it has a survival benefit. But the question is, what happened to those placebo people when they eventually progressed? And the answer is, this is the letter by Johan de Bono and colleagues in the New England Journal, it says this, before these trials, the standard of care for patients with advanced prostate cancer was sequential androgen suppression with various life-prolonging therapies, including taxanes, abiraterone, or enza. However, the control regimens in Stampede and Latitude were not designed to include the current sequential standard of care with life-prolonging crossover treatments. These treatments were not specified in the protocols, and this is critical since the majority of men in the control groups in Stampede and Latitude died without exposure to abiraterone or enzalutamide. Thus, the drugs used in these control arms were inconsistent with the current prevailing standards of care. This has implications for the conclusions of the trial and raises questions regarding whether or not there was a benefit to all participants. What they're saying is, you did a trial of Abby early, but the control arm should have gotten Abby late, but they got Abby never. And early versus never is not what the question that I face in my clinic. It was early versus delayed. And this problem plagues your studies. It plagues every single study in RCC. Pembroaxi, Cabo Nevo. It plagues Keno 48, had enough cancer. It plagues Keno 48. They didn't get Pembro on progression on the control arm of that. It plagues Keno 177. It plagues Checkmate 816. I mean, uh, we have a paper in the European Journal where we show you all the trials it plagues. These trials are all asking the question, early versus never. And that's not the question in the US. It's early versus delay. And so they don't really inform us. This is a paper. This is the paper in the European Journal of Cancer where we looked at all the studies, frontline studies of all these drugs, of all the check checkpoint inhibitors. The dark, the color doesn't show up, uh, the dark bar is telling you how many people on the control arm eventually got the drug they were supposed to get. The light bar tells you they got a different drug, even though they were supposed to get the dark bar. And the top bar tells you all the people who didn't get anything at all. Because the trial's being run in some countries where after you progress, you get nothing. And that's not a good study, in my opinion. All right, I'm going to stop. Um, so what are the takeaway lessons? I will conclude. The takeaway lessons are response rate, we treat it like gospel, but it's very arbitrary. It comes back from a dinner party of all men. Progression-free survival is also arbitrary cutoff. Nobody walks around and feels bad at that time point. The two best endpoints are overall survival and health-related quality of life. Some of our drugs are life-changing and impactful. Steve's drug in ALL is one of those examples, but some of our drugs are modest and marginal. Some of our drugs are incremental, and they still cost the same. We published this week in JAMA Journal Medicine, the price is the same. And so the whole point of oncology and reading the studies and the ones you do focus on, you're never gonna read them all, but the ones that are supposed to change your practice, you gotta ask the tough questions, because even studies that people tell you slay giants can have deep structural problems. And even studies that uh, are, are practice changing have limits. So if anyone has any questions, you can always email me there or I have a webpage as a contact me link. And the three, the three things I'll plug are, I do a podcast plenary session. It breaks down how to read a, oncology studies. Uh, and I have a YouTube channel with this thing called How to Read and Appraise Medical Research Video Series. You got quantum, teclistimab, dostarlimab, <coughs> destiny breast four. All your favorites. <laughs> there are other videos on there. 
These aren't the most popular, would you believe? Nobody. Small market. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Enjoy the